North Korean leader Kim Jong-un has said his country's intercontinental ballistic missile program puts the United States in striking range. The provocation has sent shockwaves around the world, drawing fiery rhetoric and doomsday warnings from US President Donald Trump. What's behind Kim Jong-un's actions? And why is he fanning the flames of hostility now? Atul Singh, the founder, CEO, and editor-in-chief of Fair Observer, joins the Ivy podcast to shed light on the tense internal struggle playing out behind the scenes in North Korea, and to attempt to answer the question, why now? He also discusses the efficacy of Trumpian foreign policy in Asia, and what we can learn from Kim Jong-un's actions about what's at stake for China and the region. What we are seeing is a reflection of the paranoia that now exists within North Korea, wherein the absolute rule of um, a diminutive little chubby uh, megalomaniac um, is not as stable as you'd imagine. And the specter of collapse is haunting China, just as the specter of attack is haunting America. Please enjoy our conversation with Atul Singh. You're listening to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us at membership at ivy.com. So again, Atul, thank you so much for sitting down with us today for the Ivy podcast. And I guess I wanted to briefly introduce you to our audience. So I'm sitting down today with Atul Singh, who is the founder, CEO, and editor-in-chief of The Fair Observer. Um, He's taught in multiple institutions around the world, is a prolific commentator on issues happening on a day-to-day basis. And I highly recommend that our audience actually go check out his work and the work of his colleagues at www.fairobserver.com. So I wanted to structure this podcast hitting on two key issues, I think, that have been spoken about um, over the past week and a half, namely what's going on in North Korea, as well as the outcome of the G20 summit. Um, And so to start off first with North Korea, as many people may know in the news these days, Um, There's been a lot of hype in regards to the development of the ICBM program by the North Korean regime, namely um, the launching of the Hwasong-14, which was an ICBM that potentially had the ability to hit North America and, well, in particular, Alaska. And what I wanted to ask you, Atul, is how do you interpret this situation? What What's really going on behind the, the scenes? Like, why, why now? Thank you um, for your kind introduction and the pertinent question. And the why now um, can really be answered in a very simple manner. Um, why now? The answer is why not? Uh, we have uh, a Korean uh, dictator uh, who is incessantly provocative. 
So each time he does something, it's why now? Everyone poses the why now. And the reality is, it is almost why not um, from, the, from his point of view. Um, and uh, each time he does something like this, he gets attention. Each time um, North Korea's nuisance value rises, um, to his mind, it gives him a better bargaining chip on the table. Uh, and so what we are seeing here is not quite typical, normal, rational behavior. Now, obviously, some could and do make the argument that this is happening because China is backing North Korea. This is happening because um, under Donald Trump, the United States has been saber-rattling. This is happening because the North Korean economy is in dire shape and patriotism is the last refuge of a scoundrel. Now, these are a number of theories that we um, come up with about the Hermit Kingdom, and there's a reason it is called the Hermit Kingdom. Um, very few people actually can figure out what's going on inside. Having said that, to revert to why now, um, I think um, the reason North Korea's uh, provocations have escalated in recent months um, are due to a rather tense internal situation. What do I mean by it? Well, on February 26th, 2017, I wrote um, my um, column, The World This Week, and the title was, as you can see here, I have it on the screen for you, was Can Godfather China Control Troublesome North Korea? Now, not much has changed when it comes to fundamentals since then. And why was I writing um, this that week? Well, if you remember, on February 13, Kim Jong-nam, the half-brother of King Jong-un, was killed rather spectacularly at Kuala Lumpur Airport by two rather innocent-looking women. Um, you couldn't have scripted it in Hollywood better. So... What you, what you saw was the use of we ex-nerve agent. Now, importantly, only Russia and the United States have admitted to having VX stockpiles. Even China says, I don't have it. They may have it, but they say they don't have it. The UK says they don't have it. They may also have it. After all, they are an old imperial power with excellent institutions. But they say they don't have it. Um, and we ex is almost uh, like... Uh, I mean, it's a bigger symbol in a way uh, than nuclear weapons because Britain does say it has nuclear weapons and Theresa May has said it would use it as a deterrent. She's refused to give on the floor of the parliament a no first use um, statement. So VX is, shall we say, supposedly a bit of a big deal. And the way it was used was, frankly, in breach of international law. And so what you saw was 
an action which was not only vindictive, but an action that was um, breathtakingly callous of the existing norms, and to use it in, at a place like an airport. So, now, what did it show you? Well, at first it showed you that um, Kim Jong-un, the lovely Korean chubby chap who rules uh, his country uh, like a modern-day medieval fiefdom, has VX. Okay? Um, second, uh, he demonstrated that he was willing to use VX, which is a weapon of mass destruction. And third, um, it showed that he calculates that neither the United States nor China are powerful enough to control him. Um, because remember, his brother was under the protection of the Chinese, and the Chinese were not too pleased with this action. And so uh, what you're seeing is, um, is something very interesting happening. And just before you think this is the first uh, gruesome killing, I think... Um, uh, Kim Jong-un or, um, you know, our chubby Korean boy um, has demonstrated that um, that um, he has a taste for blood. And, um, and what did he do? Well, his father was a rather kind chap. Uh, you know, he faced a challenge. Um, his father was Kim Il-sung. He, he faced a challenge from his uncle Kim Yong-joo and younger half-brother Kim Pyong-il. Um, he didn't execute his uncle or his um, half-brother. He merely sidelined them. So in a way, um, he was rather humane, even though Frederick Coolidge and Daniel Segal, um, two American um, psychologists, found that uh, the North Korean dictator had the big six personality disorders. He was sadistic, paranoid, antisocial, narcissistic, schizoid and uh, schizotypal. And by the way, I, stayed in, I shared an office with Fred Coolidge um, and will share again shortly. When we are together in one of the universities I teach, uh, we are both visiting professors and we share an office. So it's fascinating to hear his insights uh, from a very different uh, standpoint. Uh, and uh, Kim Jong-un um, decides, well, I am not quite happy with... Uh, sending off my relatives to oblivion or exile. Um, he began with um, basically getting rid of his uncle and uh, Kim Jong-un, who was basically arrested, as you remember, on television, I believe, um, in Politburo, Parliament, whatever you call it. It was rather spectacular. It was rather spectacular. And... What is even more spectacular that uh, rumors emerged that um, he uh, executed his uncle by feeding him to 120 hungry attack dogs. Uh, now that is something, my dear friend. Uh, uh, that uh, is certainly beating the imagination of a Hollywood scriptwriter. Now, it may be so this is just a South Korean rumor. Such, the fact that such rumors are believed, it, it shows you something about, uh, um, about the personality of the chap. Uh, senior officials, of course, say that uh, 
They didn't send attack dogs on him, and certainly not 120 of them. They just gunned him down using anti-aircraft guns. Uh, and, um, and by the way, um, of the 340 people this chap has killed, uh, 140 of them are senior figures from his own party. So if you are having to kill so many senior figures, including your relatives, what does it tell you? Uh, it tells you that uh, whatever your father was, you are much worse. And perhaps you might be facing some sort of an internal challenge or you fear an internal challenge. Perhaps the social, economic and political base on which your regime has rested for the last three generations may be thinning out. And so perhaps what we are seeing is a reflection of the paranoia that now exists within North Korea, wherein the absolute rule of um, a diminutive little chubby uh, megalomaniac um, is not as stable as you'd imagine. And the specter of collapse is haunting China, just as the specter of attack is haunting America, which is why both these big powers are caught in a bit of a trap. Because what does North Korea give China? It gives buffer. It gives China that valuable no man's land. I mean, you will remember that there was a controversy. And there is still an ongoing controversy, which has been about uh, a certain missile system. Okay? And the, and the fear was that um, if um, a certain American missile system was deployed in South Korea, they would have access to all kinds of stuff in China. So the Chinese fear American presence on their border. They have not forgotten 1950 to 53, and they've certainly not forgotten the Me Too or open door policy. The Chinese have long memories, as do those of us from India. For us, 1857 was yesterday. Uh, um, for us, a lot of things were yesterday. Uh, so the Americans, uh, you know, uh, have not been able to reassure the Chinese. And, and of course, the Chinese have not been able to do vice versa. And in that process, uh, uh, they both fear the worst and they are both locked in their current strategies. So uh, perhaps you are right. This is a bit of the great game, the version of the great game with um, of course, the great game was played, um, and most people don't know this, was played even before the Russians and the British appeared mm -hmm. on the scene. The Persians and the Mughals fought over Afghanistan, and both of them eventually disintegrated. And the Russians and the British fought over Afghanistan. And then, of course, uh, uh, the Soviets and the Americans fought over Afghanistan. And now, of course, rumors uh, abound that... Uh, Russia is paying back the compliment by uh, uh, surreptitiously uh, funding the enemies of America in Afghanistan. So Russia and America back at it again. Uh, and so, so the great game never ends really in Afghanistan. In North Korea, I would say that this has not necessarily been true. I mean, of course, uh, you know, they've had periods of Chinese suzerainty, Japanese suzerainty and all that. But really what is happening right now is completely unique. And they have a largely autonomous fellow in power with intercontinental ballistic missiles, with nuclear weapons, with, um, with um, um, VX, with, with chemical weapons. So, so, um, and he's paranoid and uh, trigger happy. 
And so if uh, North Korea collapses, that's a huge problem for the northeastern provinces. And uh, in terms a, of the refugee flow, refugee and flow, the economic and fallout, correct, economic fallout, and they've been subsidizing North Korea. They did stop coal supplies to them after, you know, before this, uh, to squeeze them even more. And it's a big nightmare for South Koreans because ultimately they'll be left with the bill, uh, <laughs> and it'll be a little more expensive than German reunification. Uh, uh, because North Korea is destitute. It doesn't even have the education of East Germany. And um, and if North Korea continues to be violent, then again, South Koreans have a problem. And of course, uh, Americans uh, have a problem too. So uh, the situation is looking pretty ugly for everyone, um, um, except perhaps the North Koreans, because they have been so beaten down that really at this stage, they are so desperate that uh, no situation is really bad enough. So uh, a lot of game theorists mm -hmm. have their definition of, you know, uh, in their worldview, the systems they talk about yeah. that, you know. Prisoner's dilemma. Yeah, actors, actors within the system are yeah. rational, but rationality is defined by working within your own self-interest. And yeah. as I, I think the point you made in terms of. What, um, what are the actors? Uh, yeah, who, exactly, <laughs> who are the who, actors? Who are the actors? Who who are the main players here apart from, you know, the obvious ones we think of are, are China, the North Korean regime and the United States. But maybe are, are there any other influencers on this? Well, that's hard to say. So here's the thing. Let's disintermediate. So, um, uh, there was a time when the nation state was formed and uh, the nation state was centralization of power in Paris and London to begin with, and that model was followed elsewhere. And uh, 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 it was pretty, shall we say, at when it worked at its best, it was pretty linear and efficient. And so when we say the actors are uh, China, well, who in China? Is it she or is it someone else? Maybe it's she. Uh, but does he have the bandwidth given China's debt problem? So the actors uh, are not exactly very rational nation states anymore. They act, there are actors within actors. And I, and I don't know if people are entirely rational. I would, I, would, uh, I would just tell all the game theorists, and I do tell all the game theorists and economists I meet, that there are more things in heaven and earth than are there in your philosophy, Horatio, uh, to quote a line from Act One of Hamlet. Uh, and... Uh, the classical assumptions of uh, economics uh, of a human being as a rational utility maximizing creature deri derived from Jeremy Bentham, God bless his soul, uh, uh, you know, uh, are exceedingly flawed. And I don't know if they work in the North Korean context. Uh, people have uh, neuroses, countries have uh, 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 historic uh, 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 grievances, uh, insecurities, um, uh, 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 paranoias, uh, 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 and all sorts of conditions. Um, uh, so uh, I'm forgetting a word for it. The, you know, a condition where in both uh, uh, you, you you have a deep fear and arrogance, in inferiority, as well as uh, superiority complex. I guess maybe a sense of hubris. 
No, no, no. It's a combination. I'm just mm-hmm. completely, uh, completely forgetting the word. So the Chinese have that. On the one hand, they have inferiority vis-a-vis America, mm-hmm. a deep sense of inferiority complex vis-a-vis America, Europe, and actually anyone white. Um, they even have an inferiority complex vis-a-vis Christianity. Uh, Christianity is uh, often seen in China as a path to modernity. Now, how do you uh, go from a Confucian tradition to believing that Eve came out of Adam's left rib and feel modern is another question. Uh, but, but that's China in many ways. Uh, at the same time, it has a superiority complex. So uh, the Chinese will buy uh, their Chanel's and uh, Gucci's and uh, even Lululemon's uh, and feel superior because they are a 5,000 year old culture and civilization. So uh, it is, uh, you know, a complicated story in China. And there are too many actors. And in America today, with uh, Donald Trump uh, in charge, uh, who is it that is looking after North Korea? Is it Jared Kushner? Or is it the Secretary of State, uh, Mr. Oilman? Um, Is it Trump himself? Is it Steve Bannon? Or James Mattis. Oh, exactly. Or James Mattis. I mean, but who the hell is it? And and how are decisions made? Uh, I think, you know, uh, a sphinx would be easier to decipher than the current White House. So I'm not going so far as to remotely make the assertion that, you know, all actors within are rational and that we even know the actors. Now, obviously, when it comes to North Korea, Japan may be an actor. Obviously, when it comes to North Korea, because Japan can give them money. Its key job is not scaring them, but bribing them. And uh, there's also that the historical context of that in terms correct. of the Japanese's relationship to the Korean Peninsula. Absolutely, absolutely. The Koreans can always say, "You raped our women. Please give us money, compensation." Uh, and of course, it's a little more complex than that. Uh, the North Koreans have taken Japanese hostages and whatnot. Uh, so obviously, the Japanese are involved. The Taiwanese could be, after all. They're close enough now. Um, so, uh, other than that, maybe Russia, but I think uh, Russia has lost power and doesn't provide much. And uh, North Korea is really um, a Chinese satellite state. Um, and so, um, you know, the key stakeholders, if you were to ask me in terms of nation states, um, the seat of power. There are two operative questions I think we have to ask. One is, what is the seat of power? And two, what is the heart of power? And as I see it, uh, even today, the seat of power would be the seats of power. So using the plural would be South Korea, um, China, Japan, possibly Taiwan, and of course, the global superpower, the United States. What is the heart of power within these seats of power? God only knows. So those of you who go to the mosque, the temple, the church are probably better off to comment than me. <laughs> so I, I, I wanted to, to bring back your point in regards to, um, you know, the role of the United States in this. Uh, there was a very good article in The Atlantic, yeah. um, a quite extensive one, which was delineating what are the possible outcomes? And I know it's it's always hard to predict, and yeah. sometimes predicting is in fact counterintuitive. 
because yeah. it can limit one's imagination. But if yeah. I was to ask you to yeah. perhaps describe what you would see as some potential outcomes of well, this situation. <laughs> if, you, if you want to play um, Nostradamus, you could, uh, you could say the worst outcome is nuclear war. That is uh, certainly the worst uh, option. Now, will the world uh, survive that? Of course. I don't think North Korea is in that position that it can wipe out the world. Um, and uh, and uh, um, hopefully both the Chinese and the Americans will have the restraint uh, not to go ballistic at each other. Now, of course, if you were really, uh, you know, uh, terrified about... Uh, the state of the world, you could say, well, North Korea could trigger nuclear war between China and the United States. The proverbial powder keg. The proverbial powder keg. Um, and I don't see that yet. It may happen, it may not happen, because these things happen, you know, when things are exceedingly tense. Um, and uh, have we reached that point of tension between China and uh, the US? Not quite. Um, the Chinese are still buying property in the U.S. Um, the Chinese elites still want to come and live in California, if not New York. Uh, uh, Americans still want to sell in China and continue to hope that one day they'll make money in China. Uh, building iPhones is quite lucrative as well. Yes, uh, building iPhones is certainly uh, exceedingly lucrative, um, as is uh, building anything from your sneakers and T-shirts. Uh, so... Uh, it is not in America's interest, given a huge underclass, to suddenly uh, have the workshop of the world disappear. If that were to happen, sure, some working class jobs would come back to Detroit and other Rust Belt towns. Uh, but at the same time, the cost of living to a deeply indebted and penurious society or at least uh, penurious sections of society. It wouldn't matter to those who wear Lululemon and eat Aragula salads, whether Walmart existed or didn't. Their lives are not defined by China. They, they tend to buy German products. Even their knives are German or Japanese. Uh, but uh, if you are um, an unemployed black man in a string west uh, in a porch in Mississippi, and um, you go out to buy a fan from Walmart, uh, which is good, nice Arkansas-based company. Uh, chances are that fan is made in China. And if you are in West Virginia, which um, one of the counties uh, of West Virginia is going Republican the fastest, and you have an opioid epidemic, then yes, you can get your opioids that may be made in America, but uh, everything else, all the stuff, that you use is probably made in China. So the two economies are highly interdependent. By shifting manufacturing um, to China, American middle classes and upper middle classes have gained um, cleaner air, cleaner water, cleaner soil, and um, the luxury to wear Lululemon and pretend to be environmentalists without significantly lowering their energy consumption or their lavish lifestyles. Yeah, so it's good to have China around. 
the Chinese industrialists and, of course, financiers and real estate owners and the princelings who rule China have gained enormously from globalization, as have some of the workers. After all, some people, millions have come out of poverty and economic growth is a real phenomenon, but it has also benefited uh, those at the top more. And inequality in China is dire. And, uh, and they have a massive problem now with um, bubbles crashing, growth slowing, and um, debts um, Himalayan. And so if they go to war, one theory is they could both go to war. Well, if they both go to war, they may both see social revolution. Uh, which may be the, in the interests of uh, revolutionaries. Uh, but I don't think uh, the elites in both countries are ready for that sort of action yet. They may blunder into it, but I don't think they, they, they are quite as warlike as uh, uh, 1914, when the aristocrats thought it would be over by Christmas. And so did the politicians, and everyone went marching in with bands playing, um, shiny, yeah, you know, um, uh, uniforms, medals gleaming in the sun. And of course, we know what we got were, you know, the killing fields, um, the interminable um, wait uh, for the end of the war, uh, people rotting in ditches. This time, it won't be like that. Uh, but this time, the after effects of any major conflagration will mean that the inherent contradictions in the major economies and the global economies will unravel and unravel brutally. So it is in the interests of both powers to maintain the status quo. And um, sure, it could all come apart. But I think the best case scenario is that somehow, over a period of time, um, they manage this uh, little Korean chap um, they, 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 they transition to a more senior regime. Um, perhaps, uh, you know, they could even engineer an assassination plot. These intelligence agencies are a successful one for a change. Um, I'm sure there are people plotting. Uh, and, uh, you know, if that were to, if that were so, perhaps, uh, those who have survived his many purges, um, the North Korean um, lovely chaps, many purges, you know, Kim's uh, many purges might uh, uh, might engage in a process of gradual opening up and gradual reform, and Korea could come back from the brink and gradually, you know, uh, the Chinese and the Americans could come to an arrangement wherein North Korea would not have American or South Korean troops. It could be demilitarized. Uh, so uh, I think that is the best case scenario, and that is what uh, hopefully Touchwood and we have a wonderful piece of wood in front of us will transpire. <clears throat> so to to transition, then I know we've been speaking about um, the conflict of powers on. The global stage, but I think I would maybe like to talk about what is deemed the cooperation of global powers, at least on the public stage. And uh, this past week, we had the G20 meeting, as some commentators like to joke now, the G19 meeting. And um, 
the G20 was established in the 80s as a means of getting together the world's largest economies to essentially discuss economic policy, but that morphed into a much greater form of, of statement creation and a show of unity on certain subjects, such as this um, crisis that's happening in North Korea. And I, I wanted to get your thoughts on what on earth just happened at the G20? It seems like, you know, normally we do see a lot of empty platitudes come out of it because the structure of it is is meant to produce that. But in this case, there was definitely a note of discord in it, um, namely with uh, it being hosted in Germany, um, especially in Hamburg, all the protests that happened there, and just the lack of really any form of of unity from from the United States vis-a-vis sort of our European counterparts. Yes, um, that's an accurate observation. What happened? Well, again, God only knows. Those you pray know better than me. Um, I think, look, the G20 really is more of a way that people can get together, leaders can get together, and it's a talking club, and so you can settle differences. Um, off the record or come to arrangements and if there's a crisis hopefully um, not let it boil over into full-fledged chaos or conflict and in a way the G20 has been falling short Um, it did not help when George W. Bush decided to go to war Um, it did not help uh, in the Syrian civil war Um, it did not help um, really despite all the big words during the um, Great Recession. Uh, But it has a value. It's better that people meet than not meet. And uh, who knows what would happen if they don't meet. But I think uh, what we are seeing is the classic perils of um, modern-day politicking. What is modern-day politicking? The cameras are there, politicians come, they have to create a show. If they don't create a show... Uh, their public uh, polls fall. So they're incessantly trying to um, rule through ratings and rule for ratings and rule by ratings. And uh, the extraordinary thing that uh, I saw was an American lady analyzing how Trump had won the body language war with Putin. Um and I normally um, desist watching television. I don't have television, but uh, a friend of mine commandeered me and literally dragged me to his screen and said, you've got to watch this. And I did watch it, and I was horrified. Because if one saw her analysis, then Trump had been macho, he had been magnificent, his hands were in a steeple, uh, position. He shook hands very well. He used the second hand to grab the underarm of Putin. He had eye contact. And of course, Putin was the loser and Trump was the winner. Uh, excellent uh, if this was a reality television show. The challenge the United States faces is precisely not just Trump, but women like her. I don't mean women per se or women and men like her. What do I mean by that? Is that she's judging entirely 
on show. It's utterly non-substantive. It's frightening. Now, obviously, modern politicians are also thinking about how what these people on television will be doing. So it all becomes one whole circus. The Indian politician has to hug everyone, Narendra Modi. <laughs> uh, Macron has to shake hands until, you know, uh, Donald's hand turns white. Uh, poor Angela Merkel is quite confused as to what is going on because, of course, she's the daughter of a, a Lutheran minister. So she probably wants everyone to get together and discuss everything calmly. And remember, she's a physicist on top. So she'd actually probably want to draw equations. Yeah, we get this. Yeah, everyone win-win. Yeah, we decide this. We go back. And she's utterly poor lady confused. Um, but this is not to say she doesn't... Mm, enjoy uh, the element of show because by hosting it helps her polling chances. The more stateswomanly she appears, the better off she is. So she's not above the fray either. And so we are getting this curious situation of um, this becoming a junket um, for 19 of the 20 leaders. They get to get away from home, go to a foreign country, eat good food, quaff good champagne, although I'm told Donald Trump doesn't drink, not as Narendra Modi. Um, nor does um, apparently, nor do uh, some other leaders. Um, uh, so perhaps they're just eating good food or maybe even fasting. Uh, but the point is that uh, it's a junket for administrations and administrative teams, and it may perhaps be better for officials to meet instead of leaders. It may be that the time for presidents to jet set around so much. Um, the time maybe over. Maybe they're better off um, not doing that. But I don't know. What I do know is this: is that um, the gulf between the U.S. and Europe is obvious. Um, in particular, I think the Paris Climate Accord has uh, struck um, an axe blow. Um, for obvious reasons. Uh, uh, Europe treats the environmental issues uh, more seriously. Some say they have a real politic uh, agenda because, well, their costs of energy are higher and they would like to increase costs of energy for the U.S. because the U.S. has shale gas and oil and, uh, and, um, and uh, bigger distances. After all, this is a land settled by European immigrants who wanted land. They were land hungry and so they've settled more sparsely. Uh, whilst Europe uh, is very dense and exceedingly urban, so you can build uh, more efficient systems, uh, which the Europeans have to their credit. But what Europeans are trying to do is sneak in their economic advantage through the back door. If you were to take a Machiavellian real politic point of view, maybe there's an element of truth there. Uh, but I believe with the Antarctic turning green, um, it is important to not uh, view the world entirely as a competitive zero-sum game. Uh, there are elements of cooperation that benefit everyone, including the wealthy and the poor. For instance, uh, 
If you were to take a very simple example, if you live in a city with a lot of slums and everyone spitting on the street, perhaps it is not even very good for the wealthy chap. It's the tragedy of the commons. The commons have gone. And yes, one solution is that you round up the poor and send them to concentration camps, um, which would, for some, make the world a cleaner and better place. Um, the other more fashionable solution, of course, one hears from the Silicon Valley elite that, yes, uh, there is um, an Armageddon coming and the best and the brightest of us will just go to Mars. Uh, so we won't have to create the concentration camps. People will die anyway. And, but the best and the brightest and, and um, uh, um, you know, what's that um, uh, guy's uh, name who's... Uh, uh, Iron Man, the Iron Man of, will survive, right? Um, the likes of Elon Musk and, uh, and of course, Peter Thiel. A rumor tells me that one of them uh, gets uh, blood from younger men to feel younger. Uh, that may be entirely untrue, but anyway, but I'm drifting. Uh, let's get back to point. The point is this, is that uh, some may say that, yeah, just privatize the commons. Commons be damned. Um, human beings are uh, Darwinistic creatures and therefore the market decides everything and those who can compete in the market should own everything and the rest should be here as a wood and draws of water and there's no need to invest in the commons but we know that's not quite the human condition because we are a species that has survived because of our ability to function collectively. Individually, human beings cannot run faster than cheetahs or the lions. Um, Individually, uh, human beings are not as strong as a gorilla or a chimpanzee. Individually, human beings are quite fragile. Human beings have survived because, to use the words of uh, a long-dead Greek ancient philosopher, we are social beings. Uh, and that is a philosophy that comes from ancient India, ancient China, and ancient Greece, uh, perhaps not Silicon Valley uh, and Wall Street, um, which, of course, celebrates greed is good. Uh, good old, uh, what, I, what was his name? Uh, um, Michael Douglas, I presume. Uh, but the point is this, is that um, cooperation is important for public goods. Public goods, as I pointed out, it's good to have sanitation so that you have less communicable disease. It is good to have um, safe drinking water so there are less outbreaks of cholera. It's good to have parks because aesthetically, it's pleasing, um, particularly on a summer day when uh, 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 um, you have uh, trees in full bloom. And um, uh, if you were French, uh, you know, and and you liked uh, sensuousness, and you were less of a Puritan as say Erdogan, uh, <laughs> you have women walking around in various states of undress, uh, and men too. Uh, you know, si vous prefere, and 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 it's uh, you know God's in His heaven and all's right with the world. Uh, but that apart, parks are important because they provide the lungs of a city. Parks are important because they provide places for exercise. Parks are important because they provide uh, places of repose in the urban jungle. Parks have huge intrinsic value, and societies have to figure out how to sustain things of sustainable value that may not have a price. Similarly, with the environment turning, you know, with the environment changing so dramatically, and of course, I know some people believe climate change is a myth, 
And, and some people say, well, climate change has always happened, so what's different? Well, uh, what's different is the speed and scale in the Antarctic turning green. And um, not just that, it's the tons of plastic in the ocean. Not just that, it is the contamination of water, surface water in countries like India. The level of pollution, according to um, the World Health Organization, of the Holy River Ganges is 3,000 times the level it deems safe. Now, that is pure poison in supposedly the Holy River where people are taking a dip. That is complete madness. But that is going to persist as long as cities literally discharge all their sewage, which is basically shit and urine, into the river. And industries discharge all their chemical effluents, in particular the leather industry, the tanning industry, which exports everything to places like the U.S. into the river directly without treating. So... Uh, you could be looking at a public health disaster in a land of over a billion people in 20, 30 years, if not tomorrow. So the point I'm making is it's not just a simple thing of, you know, weather becoming erratic, extreme weather conditions coming. There are lots of things that are particularly alarming, and we have to question the way we live, and we have to cooperate. That means sharing technologies, sharing costs, um, thinking about the global commons, which are very connected to the local commons, and connecting the you know local centers so that people feel a sense of ownership. And what we are seeing is a pathetic lack of leadership. Um, uh, and personally, I think the G20 has become a joke, um, especially with Ivanka Trump, take, Ivanka Trump taking her father's seat. Uh, Princess Ivanka takes uh, you know the seat of uh, Sultan um, Trump. I mean, I, 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 I doubt uh, the Saudi crown prince does that. The, <laughs> I think he's a little bit more astute. <laughs> I'm not to say he's very astute, but, uh, you know, I think he's a little more astute compared to Ivanka Trump. So I think I wanted to maybe sum up your point in the sense that, um, you know, the G20, it's, it's effectiveness aside, this, still the symbolism was important to at least pay attention to that in the way it's been interpreted at least um, by various groups. And, and I think to wrap up, um, you do present somewhat of a solution in the sense that, you know, international cooperation is critical and we will reach a point where it will be necessary. You know, we are social creatures and that necessity will push us to yeah. work together regardless of our, you know, extreme differences. The question is, is that how do we do that? How do we cooperate or how do we uh, um, implement that idea of international cooperation? Is it going to be through leaders who are remote and actually alienated from large sections of the population? Is the, is the modern uh, nation state structure uh, the way to cooperate or is it going to be cities across the world? Is it going to be other centers across the world? Is it going to be citizen-to-citizen -citizen cooperation? Um, we are living at a time of flux, so that is what we don't know. And uh, we haven't figured out. And, um, you know, of course, none of these things are easy because citizens are scared all over the world about getting jobs and distracted on social media. Even though they are hyper-connected, they are also extraordinarily isolated and atomized. So I think um, it's a time of enormous tensions again, yet again. Uh, it's not, of course, change is the only constant in human life, and every era has been one of change. But there are certain times 
when um, uh, the change in the way we live becomes, the rate of change uh, in the way we live becomes exponential. And this current time is certainly um, one wherein old certainties have gone out of the window. And so, ironically, this is a time of deep thinking. Uh, or this is a time that needs deep thinking, uh, but I'd, currently it lacks it. And, and, and that um, is uh, the big challenge for me. I, the rest is, is, in a way, the G20, etc. I mean, it may come, it may go. I mean, who cares um, how Trump was sitting? And who cares, in a way, um, what the rifts are? We know them. We know them because you just have to, you've traveled enough, uh, you just have to go to France and Germany and see how people live, or to Portugal and Spain and see how people live, and then come back here and, 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 and go to Mississippi or Detroit or even New York. And, and it tells you um, the difference in societies. And, and, and at some point, uh, societies that are consuming uh, more than others uh, societies that are saving more than others, societies uh, uh, that are poorer, societies that are richer, uh, will will have to come to an arrangement wherein uh, they decide, okay, um, how are we all going to live together on the planet? Because uh, the lives of over 7 billion now are inextricably intertwined. I say that so many times it's almost become a cliche. Uh, so if that is so, then okay, uh, uh, how do we share out, uh, as in any society, how do we share out uh, the benefits and burdens? So on that note, I think <laughs> we'll wrap up. And again, ladies and gentlemen, please check out uh, Atul's work on the Fair Observer. Um, oh, check out, we've got over 1,800 writers from over 70 countries. And the very idea of Fair Observer is uh, to look at the deeper issues behind the news to provide context and to provide multiple perspectives. So um, uh, you may not agree with um, anything you read, but if you don't just write a post, after all, uh, uh, let us have a plurality of perspectives across borders, backgrounds, and beliefs. Uh, uh, it, it may not save the world, or uh, it might just well uh, save it. So uh, at least, uh, uh, it's worth a shot uh, 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 thinking deeply and 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 uh, expressing and sharing your thoughts in a very pithy way <laughs> thank you very much thank you that's our show for this week thanks again for tuning in to the ivy podcast by ivy the social university we are the grad school for life and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings, and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community, and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.